Radical honesty is simply for simplicity. It is for the sake of being as dumb as you can be rather than as smart as you can be. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. And now for something completely different. First off, hello and welcome. Thank you to everyone who has left a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, thanks to everyone who's subscribed to the show so far. I've been getting some really great feedback about my first episode with Mark Lewison, the author of Tune In. A lot of you have been really enjoying that, and you've been very kind in your reactions to it. So thank you very much to everyone who has subscribed and left a rating and review so far. Today, I'm talking to an author coming from a very different field and in some ways a different perspective. Dr. Brad Blanton is one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. He is a very successful author. He's a psychotherapist. He's a workshop leader. He's something of a philosopher, uh, an important modern philosopher, I'd say. He was an anti-war activist. He worked in a mental institution for a while. He ran for Congress as a left-leaning independent candidate in a pretty red conservative state. He is one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to, and I think pretty soon you'll see why I feel that way. Brad is the author of Radical Honesty, which is how I initially came into contact with him, with his work. Radical Honesty, I would say, is one of the most important, impactful books I've read probably in the past half decade or so. The central thesis uh, of radical honesty, and I would say the, the sort of the guiding principle of most of Brad's work as a psychotherapist, is the idea that lying and dishonesty and you know not being real with each other is the source of most of our psychological problems and just about all of society's problems. Now, that was a very simplistic summation of Brad's work. I'll let him explain his thesis, his philosophy, a little more clearly. But just trust me, you're going to want to stick around to hear this episode. Before we get started, uh, I won't bother you with ads and interruptions during our conversation, but I will ask you now and again at the end that if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, the best thing you can do to help me is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. So if you get a minute, if you get 30 seconds, it'll only take you that long. Please be sure to rate and review my show on iTunes. Okay, now that that's out of the way, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with the author of Radical Honesty, and I would say one of the most interesting men in the world, Dr. Brad Blanton. Hello, Brad. How are you? All right. Hi. First question, is that a yurt? Uh-huh. Very cool. I live in a You live in a yurt? Yeah. What's that like? For the last nine years, I've lived in a yurt. I like it. It's nice. It's, uh, uh, it's about, I like living alone. 
when my girlfriend visits, she stays in the little casita, not too far from here, but we can stay together all night or not, depending on how we're getting along. I was just reading an article about how that's one of the new trends in relationships, particularly in America, is couples who are even married but living apart. Are you seeing more of that yourself? I can't tell for sure what most people are doing, but a lot of couples, partly because they read my book before I meet them, are working on having relationships based on what's actually going on rather than based on what illusion they can create with each other. And when couples are get honest with each other, they get, they say, I like you and I don't want to be around you all the time. <laughs> right. right, right. And uh, you're, you were okay yesterday, but why don't you get the hell out today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was sitting here, I was, when I was preparing for this interview, I have like a million questions I want to ask you. Uh, I'm sure we won't get to them all. But one thing I was really curious about is, how good is your bullshit detector? You've been living this philosophy for so long. Uh, you embrace this philosophy. I mean, are you walking around all day sort of frustrated by all the bullshit you see everywhere because you're so good at seeing through it? Or, or how good is your bullshit detector, I guess, is what I'm asking. I think it's pretty good, and yes, it is. Um, it's so obvious to everyone. Anyone that watches the news knows that you know Donald Trump is full of shit as a Christmas turkey, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who doesn't know that's stupid and doesn't basically perceive anything. And he's a sick man, and he's, he's a dumbass. And so I have Republican friends that I play golf with down there. And I, if they bring anything up, I just say, no, you dumbass. That's what I'd say. <laughs> and I basically, what mostly, I just call bullshit on bullshit a lot. And I'm cheerful about it. And I say, no, I don't believe that bullshit. And I don't see why you do. I don't see how you even say you're a Republican and not shit your pants. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how can you be so goddamn stupid and I don't have any particular I don't have any particular kind of patience for it I just say you're a good guy and you're not a bad golfer and I want to win some money off of you but you're a dumbass <laughs> <laughs> but how do you really feel about them <laughs> well I, I we're talking about Trump I don't want to get too political but I might as well ask you another question I had uh, along similar lines I was watching I was watching an interview with you and you said something I found really thought provoking. You said Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 because she was not willing to be ridiculous and Trump was. What what did you mean by that? Well, uh carefulness. It, I guess the golf game comes up again. The worst mistakes I make in golf are from being too careful. We got this thing at my golf course, 90% of shots that don't get to the hole don't go in. Because <laughs> 100% of them, of course, don't go in. But if you hit it too hard, it has a chance of hitting the back of the hole and going in. But there is not that chance if you hit it too easy. Hmm. So carefulness causes more problems than being too aggressive. Like basically, you want to have everything. You want to have you want to, uh, uh, generally you want to make sure every putt you hit goes about a foot beyond the hole. If it doesn't, 
you didn't get it close enough to where it could go in. The idea is it's better to go ahead and go for it than it is to try to make it go in by willing it. And, and in putting, when you will, you sway your body. And in hitting the ball for short shots, you sway your body instead of standing on your feet because you're being careful. Oh, go ahead and encourage it to go in by leaning forward like you do when you watch sports on TV. But those things don't help. They're magical thinking. And, uh, and carefulness was the problem with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And uh, plus, she was a damn liar. <laughs> but she was careful to lie carefully, to hide from Bernie's supporters how they were stealing the money from them and the votes from them. And basically, uh, my general prejudice is against people who are unwilling to take risks as uh, as though there's some wisdom in that. There is not any real wisdom in being unwilling to take risks. The wisdom is in taking intermediate, moderate risks and consistently doing so. And you and in progress is made through failure, through risks that didn't work, but weren't so bad they didn't kill you so you can try again. Hmm. <laughs> and that's the general my general philosophy is when when people I say goodbye to people, I don't say be careful or drive carefully. I just say, don't do anything I wouldn't do. They think, oh, hell, that is me. Permission. Yes. So it's like, like, for me, what works best is to create as you go. You know, when you're in golf, you're creating a shot each time. No, no shot is the exact duplicate of the previous shot. And so you have to use whatever club you use and hit it however hard you hit it to make it go the distance and the direction it needs to go. And while you're selecting and doing these things, you're making estimates and guesses based on past experience and the environment that you're in. And that's basically all we ever do. And in a relationship to each other, there, there are reasons for why communication is enhanced by you being willing to connect and be honest with other people because you don't have the further entanglement that comes there when you're trying to always mess with it and make it right. Is that generally how you would sum up radical honesty then? Like what, what in essence does that phrase mean to you? I um, was just talking to a friend about something happened when I was younger I, I when I was in college I worked my way through school so I had a job at nights 44 hours a week six eight six nights one week and five nights the next I would be I was an award attendant in a state mental hospital called Austin State Hospital and my job was to like be there and keep an eye on all the inmates in different wards at different nights all over the hospital. So I worked at the whole hospital over the course of a couple of years. I was in on a lot of different wards. But one of the on one of the wards there were these two old men. One was German and the other was Czech. 
and neither one of them could speak English very well. Just a few words. And they were psychotic. But every now and then, one of them would come over and get in the upper bunk with the other one. They would sit in the upper bunk and they would talk. One of them would speak in German and the other one would speak in Czech. And they would have these animated conversations and they would take turns and they would laugh and they would slap each other on the knee. And the supervisor said, okay, when that happens, you have to separate them and make them go to their own separate bed. But I thought they were having a good time, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I let them go ahead and have this wonderful conversation. And of course, they weren't understanding each other. They were both crazy. They were both speaking different languages. But they were animated, and they were communicating, and they were having quite a good time. And so I would let them go on. If it made too much noise, I'd quiet them down a little bit, or I'd move them so they were like a little bit out of the periphery of the rest of the, of the people on the ward and let them have their conversation. But I often thought about how that conversation was pretty much like all human beings in all relationships, is that you're speaking to someone else and you're presuming that everything you say is getting communicated to them exactly the way you're thinking about it and it's not. And this, and both people have that same assumption and it's an incorrect assumption. It's wrong. We all have people don't get the same images of things or the same ideas of things that you have that you think you've communicated and you don't get what they're saying. So we're always like in a hit or miss conversational uh, conversational context and radical honesty is simply for simplicity it is for the sake of being as dumb as you can be rather than as smart as you can be so you can just say yes no I like that <laughs> no don't like that <laughs> and you communicate some direct a report of what your experience is and what your ideas are as baseline as you can because everything is already confusing enough just in talking to another human being presuming you have the same language that means the same things to both people so radical honesty is basically to simplify communication so that occasionally communication occurs I want to know more about how this philosophy sort of crystallized for you. Like I, I was, you know, I've been reading your work and, and I've been watching interviews in that. You talk about uh, living and working in Washington, D.C. for, I think, 30 years, mm. which, uh, yeah, going back to politics, I guess. Like, how did this, would you say the genesis of that philosophy then came when you were in this mental hospital then, or working at this mental hospital, I should say, and it sort of, was hammered home when you were working in Washington or, or how did it develop and change over the years? And when did you feel like you really arrived at something that was really worth writing down for your, your book, Radical Honesty? Uh, it was years later, but, uh, I would say that probably, uh, the major influence in my life prior to that was, were several, I had several teachers. One was a theologian named Joseph Wesley Matthews, who was a Methodist preacher who had basically was an existentialist. And we studied Kierkegaard and Camus and all the existentialist 
writers and philosophers. And so I was in a place called the Christian Faith and Life Community where we spent a couple of years, like 10 hours a week, studying basically German and European existentialists and some Eastern teachers. And basically, while I was doing that, I was also in the civil rights movement. So I got in the civil rights movement in 1959 when I was 19 years old. And I basically was intensely in it until 1964 when we passed the Civil Rights Bill. And I was in the anti-Vietnam War movement after that for eight more years. And basically, I was a part of the whole hippie movement, and I was in Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love. And I took a whole lot of acid and smoked everything there was in the world and took every illegal drug known to man many times. <laughs> it seems to have worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, and so I, I learned from all those experiences to, I clearly knew that we who were like dropping acid and, and telling each other the truth more than anybody ever had before, that we knew more than our elders. I knew, like a lot of kids know these days, that they know more than their elders. That basically, they know more because they have been in the experience, like the kids that are, are trying to bring about gun reform, that were actually there when friends of theirs got killed, know things that fucking... NRA right-wing male chauvinist pigs don't know. And we knew that we knew things they didn't know. When I got arrested and at the time the conversations we had in jail were like the best, most intensive group therapy sessions I was ever in, even though I was in a lot of them because I was in training to be a therapist. But the thing, the thing is that there was something therapeutic about the clear demarcation of you can't eat at this lunch counter because you're the wrong skin color. Or you can, and this other person can't. Well, I'm not either, and I'm taking up this seat until you arrest me. And basically, I had a lot of experience of saying to people who were certain that they were right, you're not, and I will not obey your rules. And basically, I learned this very compassionate attitude called fuck them if they can't take a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically that's that's what eventually evolved into radical honesty because I worked with all these I worked with more lawyers than any other single profession in DC because there's so many lawyers in DC <laughs> they they actually uh, the a lot of the lawyers that I knew in DC also quit. A lot of them that were in therapy with me ended up doing something else than lawyer other than lawyering <laughs> in D.C. because they just got tired of all the bullshit that was involved in doing it. And I, I got tired of lots of bullshit on lots of things socially. Just like a whole lot of us hippies were. All of us didn't quite compromise as much as most of us did and go back to behaving. So the idea, what I started writing down was that I asked people systematically to experiment with being more honest 
in their relationships and to their to their intimate associates and to their colleagues and to their boss and to the people that they worked with and to track it and keep track of it and see how it worked out. And what happened is that people who came to see me that were depressed and had been depressed for some time, when they started following my coaching and my examples and participating in my groups and then trying it in their lives, found that within a couple of months they were no longer depressed. And why then did it happen? Why did it happen that people who were once depressed were no longer depressed? And people who had various issues like problems with functioning sexually or problems sleeping or problems uh, staying in a relationship, all these things changed through this persistent practice of making sure that they told in a descriptive fashion in the dumbest way possible, exactly what they thought, what they felt, and what they wanted. And whether they got it or not, they communicated what they wanted, and they more often got it than they thought they would when they weren't trying to manipulate someone into doing it. And they also learned that when you manipulate people into doing what you want, and they do what you want, you still don't get what you wanted from them doing it because you know you're the one who did the con in the first place. And so... The real nourishing relationships came from people who honestly appreciated each other for the communications that they had between them because the communications triggered a kind of warmth and appreciation when they were honest, even if they were negative. And so I started thinking about it and talking about it and then running more and more groups about it, and then I started writing it down. And then about 30 years ago, the first book, Telling the Truth, it eventually became Radical Honesty, came out. That was about 30 years ago. What about personally? Like, you talk about your experiences in the 60s and going to jail, and, and you were a very honest generation in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, obviously. But what about personally? Like, do you think most of your life you've been pretty good at living this philosophy? And, and I'm particularly interested to ask you, do you slip up now and then? Like, do you sort of let a white lie, do you say a white lie sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're not really thinking about it? Does, is it still difficult for you sometimes to live by this philosophy? Yeah, it, it's, it's not probably, because I've tried it before a lot, it's not as difficult for me as it is for other people. But I do think that the uh, agreement made explicit that I'm going to be as honest as I can with you and you making that agreement with me is in and of itself an intimate agreement and that we can both understand that and appreciate each other because I'm, I'm going to listen to you and you're going to listen to me is a part of what the agreement has implicitly in it. Okay, I'm here. Tell me what you got to say. And, and, um, my daughter is a singer-songwriter, Carsey Blanton. You might, she has a song. You might see if you can find that song. Maybe you want to put it in this podcast. She has a song called To Be Known. And uh, that's all I've ever wanted to, was to be known. It's a really great song because to be known means you just, you don't, you're no longer on guard about somebody who might be finding something out. You're willing for them to know anything. And yes, I, I, I failed uh, 
to be honest. And then when I catch myself, I say, well, that was a lie. That was bullshit. Sorry, I called bullshit on myself. And it's also a much more fun relationship with whether whenever people are willing to call bullshit on themselves, it's a lot funnier and a lot more fun. And I don't recommend that you tell the truth all the time. Uh, basically, if you have Anne Frank in the attic and Nazi knocks on the door and says, Are there any Jews in this house? Say no and lie. And if you can, like, kill the Nazi. <laughs> it's like I'm not in favor of, of uh, I don't like, if I smoke a joint, I don't call the cops and say, Hey, I'm smoking a joint over here. I thought maybe you ought to know about it. <laughs> Uh, it's not that it's for intimate pe- relationships between people that you know. And so, and I lie by exaggeration sometimes. I lie to the IRS all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I got audited once and I said to the IRS person right in front of my accountant and the IRS and everything else, she said, why did you try to take that deduction? I said, because I thought I could get by with it. She said, well, you can't. I said, well, all right. My <laughs> <laughs> account right in front of her. I had to pay 10000 extra a year. So she told me, and I said to my account, anytime I get audited and I don't pay 10000 extra, you're fired. He said, yes, I understand. She said, I understand, too. And we all were laughing. We all up, and I gave her 10000 bucks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the game, you know. Okay, you're on the golf course. You notice that one of your friends is misrepresenting his score, shall we say. What do you uh, do? Do you call bullshit? Is that worth it? Oh, yeah. I do. They, they know me. and They know that you better figure out if you don't want to be. <laughs> if you don't want something pointed out, don't fucking do it. Or, <laughs> All right, I I'm, I'd be shocked if no one's asked you this one, but I have to ask. Uh, Your wife comes downstairs in a new dress, and she says, "Honey, does this make me look fat?" And in your mind, you're thinking, "Well, yeah, it does." What What's the move there? <laughs> I've, had, I've been asked that question millions of times. I at least thousands. <laughs> uh, I say, "Yeah, you look like a whale in that dress." <laughs> what the hell I say what the hell you think I'm a fashion expert no yes or no do you look fat in this dress this is a concern about what kind of image you're presenting all that stuff you know it's uh, uh, it's like uh, whatever I think is what I say whatever I think at the time and what I might think at the time is you look good I'll say you look good and uh, the, the question is she wants a survey of public opinion. <laughs> right. And so I'll say whatever shows up in me at the moment. But basically, this uh, the decision I point out is hers about whether she wants to wear that dress or not. She wants to know what image it creates in the minds of other people. So I say whatever it is. But I usually put additional comments in there. And she says, oh, shut up. <laughs> but it basically, it's cheerfully not being too obedient to the rules of politeness, but still being connected. Right. 
How has this philosophy impacted your intimate relationships? Because you've been married several times. Um, I've, been, I've had five successful marriages. And they're successful because the kids are all really beautiful and advanced and successful and making it in the world. And I'm still in relation. I'm still connected to the women that I was married to. We co-parented and we did the work and we've stayed connected. One, uh, right now we're working with some, with my nephews are having some troubles and one of my ex-wives is working with me to try to get him, uh, some new position in, uh, out of trouble so we stay connected and we we forgive each other and we don't live together anymore has radical honesty improved your relationships how is that or has it led to to the dissolution maybe of some of your relationships it's done both i would say that um generally the it improves because what happens is uh, surprise on the part of what comes out of other people being being surprised at what they have to say is a nice experience you know one of the things that happens with couples that have been together 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years is that they there are no surprises anymore everybody knows everything that's going the other one's going to say but not all couples are that way. Some of them still have surprises and they're happy to be surprised and they do things together and apart that still have a great deal of variety in them. And they know each other well and they support each other pretty well, but they also basically don't presume that they don't have to look at each other for 10 years because they already have seen that. <laughs> mm. So the idea is to be available to whatever occurs next and not think that everything is the same because it isn't. What's your take on monogamy? Do you, are you in the camp that it's, it's a unnatural impulse for us humans or what are your thoughts on that? I think that it's that monogamy or polyamory are, are, are okay. And that being the persistent philosophy it's like sometimes you want to be monogamous and sometimes not. Like if I've been with women who, when they were pregnant and didn't want to mess around with other guys and we would suspend, uh, our polyamorous relationships for, I would quit because she couldn't, because it was in, it, she was pregnant and we were doing that nesting thing. I did that pretty well <laughs> most of the time. And so that sometimes we were monogamous and sometimes we were polyamorous and sometimes we were abstinent, but we did it in a kind of an ongoing conversation and we were trying to be as fair and direct with each other as we could be. So it's like sometimes monogamous, sometimes polygamous is fine. As far as I'm concerned, it's just what counts is the honesty along similar lines. One of my big interests is jealousy and jealousy in relationships. Uh -huh. Have you dealt with that? And if so, how? Yes, everyone who's been in any kind of polyamorous relationship, it's difficult 
to not. All of us basically, I think, would prefer to have the person be monogamous with us and we could screw around with anybody we want whenever we like. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Brett. <laughs> What's the baseline ground rule? Is that like I get everything, you do whatever I want. <laughs> right. And so you don't want to, I don't want to be threatened, you know, if, but I have been in a relationship with a person who was in love with another person and I love the other person for loving them. It is possible. It's the problem is that to be maintained, it requires so much processing. I think more processing than, than, uh, anything else almost because you are possessive and we automatically want to have our person that we love have their main allegiance to be to us to me i want you to be mostly in love with me then you can have sex with this other guy but you make sure you come back and reassure me that i'm the most loved one and you don't say, oh, yeah, I forgot about you. How you been doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was having so much fun with this other guy, I didn't even think about you. And, oh, God. <laughs> but if that was a joke, that'd be right funny and everybody could laugh about it. But if it was like really said, it would hurt, right? Because you're attached to your image of what should be if everything is right. You have this internalized if if she really loves me she couldn't just go off with this other guy and love him just as much as me and then then come back to me and still love me again although i can do that nobody else can <laughs> and so it's difficult also because it's just not conventional and there's not as much social support explicitly about it people are not generally honest about their polyamorous relationships because it's such a challenged thing and challenging. So I think when you get jealous, the first thing to do is to tell detailed sharing of it. It's like to basically say, I couldn't sleep last night. I was thinking about you being there and in bed with him. And I wanted to call you and talk to you. And uh, so I just would go to sleep and wake up and you describe exactly what occurred and she'd say, Oh, well, okay. Sorry. You had that time. I had a great time having sex with him. <laughs> and if she says that you say, okay, and get the details. And one of the surprising things about getting the details is it might turn you on. It's good pornography. <laughs> and you all might make love celebrating her making love with the other guy. I've actually done that before too. And it worked. I literally just received an email from a woman detailing basically exactly the experience you're just describing. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes total sense, right? Uh-huh. All that erotic energy has to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you're in your in your 70s today, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sitting, talking yeah. to me, do you feel like you've, do you still get jealous? Do, do you have any of those feelings still? I do, yeah. When uh, 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 in a relationship, we live two separate places. We get together every now and then with a woman who's fifty-three. I'm seventy-eight. No, I'm not. I'm seventy-seven, almost seventy-eight. 
and she has another relationship with a guy in Italy. She goes to see every now and then, but once a year or so. And I still get a little bit jealous, but I've talked to him on the phone and on Skype and we work through things. Okay. And <laughs> everybody knows everything. <laughs> and, uh, so I don't, it's not a big issue for me. And I like being alone more and more as I get older. I think I'm becoming an old living old man in a yurt reprobate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really happy doing this. So yes, I get, jealous now and then and it's not a preoccupation it's just sort of like oh yeah jealousy mm -hmm. yeah and then i get back to whatever i'm writing on or working with staying uh on the subject of relationships in your practice as a therapist did you kind of see the, the same relationship issues coming up over and over again and if so what were they I, I have seen lots of relationship issues come up over and over again, and they have a lot to do with possessiveness and jealousy that we were just talking about having to wanting to control the activity behavior and feelings of the other person and uh, uh, wanting to guard against them doing things you didn't, you don't want done and not doing things that you want done is an attempt to control other people in order for you to feel uh, safe and also in order for you to feel as though things go your way because you're in charge. And uh, I would say that probably one of the values of meditation, I've meditated for many years, on a regular basis, more or less, that the one of the values is that when you just like sat for 20 minutes or an hour, there's a, you think about the things that you thought about before you meditated and they don't have quite the bothersome power that they had before you meditated. And I ask, why is that? And it's because, yes, you've accepted something that is there, whether you like it or don't like it. The point is, there it is. <laughs> and you've gotten a little bit like dumber with regard to thinking that you have to control it or you have to make sure the world fits everything. You, you do it for yourself as well as for other people. You get to a place where you don't have to fix everything. You don't have to make everything right for someone, for your mate or your kids or your partner or your friend. You can say, you can listen and you can say, yeah, I think this or I think that. And things don't have to go your way in order for things to go your way. That's one of the things you learn from meditation is that things go the way that they go and you go the way that you go and you don't have to fix it. You can just be present to it. And that this ability to call yourself present is more important than the ability to be right about what's going on or to be in charge or in control. And so the idea of surrendering control 
is is basically as I see it a voluntary surrender to your own involuntary nervous system. So instead of fixing the world so that you don't have any form of shock or pressure or increase of, of a heart rate or anything like that, you're trying to arrange things so that that doesn't occur. When you're doing that, you're making a whole lot of unnecessary busyness for yourself. You could just basically say, uh-huh, okay, there it is, there's that. Oh, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Okay, well, I like not liking that. <laughs> and, and as those things go on, and after a while you breathe, and after a while you haven't thought anything for a long time, two or three minutes, you just sit there like a dummy. And that's blessed state. You sit there like a dummy in relationship to another person, you'll find that sitting there like a dummy together is one of the most loving things you can do. And stop taking everything so damn personally, right? Right. What kind of meditation do you practice? Oh, I do self-hypnosis, autogenic relaxation. I learned TM many years ago, 35 years ago. I still do a kind of an amalgam of TM and autogenic relaxation. I just follow my breath and sometimes I recite an internal mantra, but it's not very busy. It's just one relax, two relax, three relax, and just shut the fuck up. It's like <laughs> my main mattress is shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's really good. Well, I, that segues nice into something else I wanted to ask you about. Reading your work, I mean, it's it's clear to me that, that your ideas have a lot in common with a lot of Buddhist ideas uh, and a lot of what some people call Eastern wisdom. Um, did you get in, interested in that stuff back in the sixties? Like where, where, have you done a lot of reading of Buddhism and stuff like that? Has that impacted your thought a lot? It has. I've been to Buddhist places. I had some Sufi teachers that were both Sufis and had studied Buddhism. I was in a, a Sufi dervish dance group once. I had a teacher Adnan Sarhan, who's still alive out in Arizona somewhere. It must be about 80-something now. Um, basically, uh, have, I did the Eureka 40-day training. You may have heard of that years ago. Uh, Oscar Ichazo, who studied lots of different religions and basically did syntheses of them. And I've done lots of um, uh, movement and meditation and things like that. So basically, I just do whatever seems like a good idea now. Now I'm getting older, I do more stretching because it, I, I shrivel up and get tight and stiff rather than... And it helps my golf game. I'm still... I still uh, stretch fairly often, I'd say like every day, every other day, I do 15 or 20 minutes at least. And I generally meditate every day. I do some working out now and then, but basically, even when I hit golf balls, it's a meditation. So a meditation is kind of like a perspective on things. I'd say I spend a lot of my day meditating every day. 
yeah, it's kind of like the Zen theory of you're supposed to meditate when you're washing the dishes, that kind of thing. Is that what you're talking about? I definitely do meditate when I wash the dishes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and I think probably I like Sufis because they're funny. Hmm. And they don't care. They They don't believe. I teach something called the Sufi Levels of Consciousness, and there's a chapter in Practicing Radical Honesty that basically outlines the Sufi Levels of Consciousness. And basically, they, they're just the, the way you get delivered into new perspectives once you're grounded in one. So, so you, you start at the lowest level of human consciousness. It's called the Level of Belief. And that is a belief in anything. So when you transcend the level of belief, it's that like belief is not what's important. Presence is. And so you, you make these gradations up to these levels of consciousness. and Basically, despair itself is a very high level of consciousness. And it's something you want to attain. And then you get to a really high level called suicidal panic. Whoa. <laughs> and then you either kill yourself or you don't. If you don't kill yourself <laughs> and you don't run down to a lower level, <laughs> you're suicidal, but you're no longer in a panic about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then right there is the next level, which is called here and now. Mm-hmm. And basically... These guys are tough. These old Sufis are tough as nails. And basically, uh, there are no bullshit people. Like, basically, yes, okay, this is it. <laughs> and uh, all those higher levels of consciousness, they say, are fairly rare. That 98% of the people spend 98% of their life at the level of belief. And the level of belief means that you have some kind of bullshit assessment that you think is more important than the experience of reality. And it's bullshit, basically. So I, I like the Sufis because they're funny and they're, they don't back down from nothing. And they have great music. I really like a lot of uh, traditional Sufi music. Uh, Do you consider yourself a Christian today? What's, what's your take on old Jesus Christ? Uh, I just learned a, a song by Hayes Carl. I just learned to play it, and the chorus is, uh, I hope I don't ruin it for you. Go look it up online and listen to it. But anyway, you might want to put it with this podcast, too. What's the name of it again? Hayes Carl. He's, she Left Me for Jesus is the name of it. <laughs> okay, that's great. <laughs> it covers a lot of what we were just talking about. And uh, one of the things that, uh, well, it, it, I don't want to mess it up for you. So just listen to that. Hayes Carl's his name. And the song is, <laughs> She Left Me for Jesus. But one of the, the chorus is, she says that he's perfect. How could I compare? She says I should find him and I'll know peace at last. But if I ever find Jesus, I'm kicking his ass. <laughs> um, because I'm the founder of a church called the World Futilitarian Church. I'm a futilitarian. 
and I'm, I'm the Pope of this church, and I'm known as the Pope of No Hope. But <laughs> and everybody who's a member of the Futilitarian Church is the Pope. So if you become a member, you're the Pope right then, starting out. You're the Pope. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. That, that sounds perfect. 100. <laughs> percent All right. Good. Uh, futilitarianism. What is futilitarianism? Yeah, that's it. Futilitarianism has two precepts. The first one is forget it. <laughs> and the second one is pygmies are stealing my luggage. And that's <laughs> that's based on a vision I had on drugs once of little pygmies running around all over the face of the earth getting shit and putting it in their little bags and stealing it. That was the picture of the capitalism that I have in my mind. Pygmies are stealing your luggage and forget it. Those are the two. That's it. You believe that you're a futilitarian. We we were talking about the IRS earlier. I really hope you take the time to actually register this church. And, you know, I feel like that'll help with your taxes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't ever bothered with that. <laughs> you know, another thing I wanted to ask you about is, especially when I was younger, I had political ambitions. I've always loved politics. It's like the greatest show on earth, especially American politics. I'm Canadian, but you guys just have it. It's the greatest show on earth. Um, I eventually didn't pursue that because I don't think I'm on the same level as you, but I, I consider myself a fairly honest person. I hate bullshit. I don't like, you know, talking in double speak and not saying what you mean. And so that kind of said to me that I probably wouldn't make a very good politician. You ran for Congress <laughs> in 2004. Why? And what did that teach you? Well, I was interested in whether or not a politician could be honest and see what would happen. And actually, I ran against Eric Cantor, who was the House majority, almost to be majority leader at the time I ran against him. I ran against him because I thought he was full of shit, and basically I was... Uh, wanted to see and I spent like $80,000 of my own money and raised $80,000 so I had a $160,000 budget and my opponent spent a million and a half <laughs> and he was the incumbent and I got 25% of the vote and I thought that was pretty good it was a record for an independent in Virginia so uh my full campaign was, uh, look, <clears throat> I probably don't have a chance in hell of winning. I just wanted to see if there were any intelligent people in these 10 counties in this district. And maybe there are. If there are, vote for me, not for this idiot. <laughs> and, and I liked the interview. These people would interview me, and they'd start questioning me, see if I would confess something, and they'd say, have you ever been involved in extramarital sex? I said, most of my life, all the time. I <laughs> you know, have you ever used any illegal drug? And I said, I use every illegal drug known to man. I've been smoking marijuana for 45 years. I still haven't reached any conclusions because I haven't smoked enough yet to know. <laughs> <laughs> and I need, to, I need to emphasize, I'll let you go on, but I need to emphasize, you're in Virginia. You're running in... Virginia, which right. is a red state, which for anyone right. not familiar, that's a very conservative place, right? It was. It was a very conservative place then. It's getting better now, though. But anyway, 
Yes, that's right. So uh, the reporters lost interest in it because there's nothing to find out that I wasn't willing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave them more stuff to write about than, than they could even write about. And basically, it was yeah, I knew it was not going to be successful in terms of winning it, but it really did have an impact because when I ran the second time, I asked all the people who were going to vote for me at the end to go ahead and vote for the Democrat because it was a really, really close race for the mm. Senate. And they did, and the Democrat won by like 10,000 votes, and I sent him 30,000 votes. So I made a difference. And the balance of power in the United States Senate went Democratic by one wow. because of what I So it actually did have a big political impact on the United States. And the the whole uh, it was a lot of fun to go out there and just have people ask questions and just answer them with whatever I thought. And I would say, no, I think you're wrong, and it's a stupid idea. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, that's right, that's a good idea, I like that idea. And that would basically people thought I was an anomaly and weird and didn't have a chance. And they were right. <laughs> and it was it was it was a kind of a fun thing to do, but it was also a bit oppressive to have to keep doing it and keep doing it for like months. But it wasn't too bad. I I had I learned a lot and I wrote a lot from what I learned from it. Shifting topics a bit, just because I, I want to make sure I ask you as much as I can and our time's running out. I wanted to ask you something about parenting. You brought up um, that you're a father before. Uh-huh. I, I really like kids, and I always used to say, like, I like them at that age right before they start trying to figure out how to be cool. You know what I mean? Like, I think you say it's around, like, 11, 12, and you're right. And the, yeah. the more I think about it, it's like, yeah, like, little kids are awesome. They're so much fun. But how do you, like, I'm not a father, I'll say that. Um, I'm not a parent, so I really don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm curious how you raise kids to be as honest as possible, but at the same time still being social. You know, you, you know, trying to get them familiar with social customs, um, as frustrating as they can sometimes be. What was your philosophy as a parent in that regard? Did you just encourage honesty all the time, even with little kids, or, or how, did you, how did you approach that? No, I, you, uh, I, I have a book called Radical Parenting, and it basically, the fundamental thesis of that book is that <clears throat> when you have that child, just touch that child's feet and let them be the guru. They have a whole lot more to teach you that you've forgotten than you have to teach them. And what they have to teach you is much more valuable than what you have to teach them so that you learn from them. They, and the thing I love about kids is that they, Starting from the very beginning, as they get older, they become, you know, they get a year old, they start talking, get two years old, they start talking a whole lot. They have all these wonderful ability to pretend. And so it's a lot of fun to play pretend games with kids. And I like it. You can pretend like you're anything, Star Wars, anything, you, whatever you've seen recently, you can pretend and just pretend and pretend and pretend. And pretend games are a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun and laughter and running and hide and go seek and a whole lot of stuff in it. So what happens is those pretend games are a great source of joy. 
and the great way of connecting of kids with each other and with adults. And uh, that works fine until about 10 or 11 or so. They start another level of pretending called pretending that you're not pretending when you are. Hmm. And the other name for that is lying. As they learn how to lie in order for the sake of maintaining some social artifice of some sort. And so what we, where the, the, the being that you are as a parent loves the being that child is as a child. And there's no doubt about that as that goes on. Even when you get mad, you still love them. And so that what happens is that the uh, pretending is a fun game. And when you suspend the pretending that you're not pretending when you are, you go back to the fun of pretending. And everybody gets to laugh a lot and stuff like that. And things become not serious, but more joyful. And so what I say is that the first thing in being with children is to connect with them. And just get them, get where they at, what they're doing, what are they playing with right now, what are they interested in, what do they want to do today. That's it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is about the treacherous making it from early adolescence on. I have a son now who's 11 years old in Sweden. My oldest child is 50 in October. She's a big wheel at University of California at Berkeley. And my youngest son is 11 and he lives in Sweden and he goes to the English school and he's funny. And I have a whole five other kids in between, like basically. I have, and all of them uh, basically uh, are pretty happy, healthy people. So that's why I said I've had five successful marriages is because the kids that came out of them have successful marriages and, and successful lives. And they come from being more attentive than righteous. That is, they're more attentive than being right. They're more interested in paying attention, being present, being where they are than they are in being righteous. That's, that's so, a great phrase, especially for this particular moment in history, more aim to be more attentive than righteous. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's quite a contrast to Donald Trump. <laughs> to say the least, yeah. And, and the people on ICE would say either side of the Trump debate on both sides, be more attempt, be more, try to be more attentive than righteous. I, I like that a lot. What do your kids think of the radical honesty? What do they, would you say most of them have embraced that? My, my daughter has a card game she just came out with. She has about five albums. She's a fairly famous singer-songwriter. And she basically uh, uh, has a game that's just now being marketed and is catching on around the world called The Effing Truth. <laughs> and it's a card game where people tell the truth about various sexual experimentation they've done in their lives. And, and and ask them to tell the truth about it. You know, have you ever had sex out of wedlock? Have you ever uh, 
you know, had sex without protection. Have you ever had sex with more than one person? All these things. And people have these honest conversations called the effing truth. <laughs> I'd say she's pretty close in my path, doing a better job than I'm doing. And uh, the, the most, my kids all have a pretty good sense of humor. That's what I really like. That's what the big focus on presence brings about a lot of jokes, brings about lots of sense of humor because you can start joking about your righteousness and your attachments rather than being so serious about them. So I would say that's, those are the main characteristics that they're able to joke about things that people take too seriously. I have one more question for you. Um, I'm reading your autobiography, which I would strongly recommend for anyone listening to this because it's, it's, it's funny and it's extremely honest and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's often moving, but you had an absolute son of a bitch for a stepfather. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And here you are in your late seventies. And I guess as I'm reading this book, one thing I'm thinking about is the question of forgiveness. I mean, he was, you know, to cut a long story short, he's very abusive to you and you and your mother uh, and your brother. Have you forgiven him? Is that pain still lingering? Yes, I think I have forgiven him, and I'm actually grateful to him for the the benefit of the wounds I received from him. You know, basically, I also really learned how to stand up and take care of people that I loved and myself. And when I left home at 13 and a half, I fractured his skull and broke three of his ribs, put him sent him to the doctor and then later pulled a gun on him and told him if he ever hit my mother again, I was going to kill him. And he understood it and got it. And just to make sure I went back when I was 15 and beat him up one more time. <laughs> and that processing allowed me to forgive him. We became friends. And one of the things he used to say when he was drunk, he had PTSD. He was in the Pacific in World War II for six years and he killed a lot of people. And basically, um, he he had said to me when he was drunk a couple of times, whenever I'm buried, you go out to my grave and get a bottle of whiskey and pour the bottle of whiskey on my head and then piss on my feet. So later on, I did. I got a bottle of whiskey out there, but I poured the whiskey on his feet, on his head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that made me laugh. <laughs> And that was the act of redemption that worked. I forgave him after that. <laughs> and basically, he did the best he could. And I learned a lot from him. So I'd say that I've forgiven him and benefited from what he did in my life. Wow. Well, Dr. Blanton, I really can't thank you enough for, for making time for me today. I could talk to you all day, but I know you have to go. I enjoyed this. I'm really glad, and, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. What a cool guy, right? I mean, that guy is one of my heroes for sure. And if you haven't seen it, you have to see this. There's this one video on YouTube that I was alerted to by one of my favorite podcasters, a guy called Christopher Ryan, on his podcast, Tangentially Speaking, I think. It's an account of Brad's run for the Senate. It is easily one of the best things on YouTube, I think. And 
to catch that video and to also sign up for some more information about Radical Honesty, which if you listen to this episode and that sounded interesting to you, you know, this is a nuanced uh, philosophy. This is a nuanced program. And I think you'd probably benefit from more details about it. So please go to zfstockhill.com slash Brad. On that website, you'll find the show notes. You will find a link to get in from more information about Radical Honesty and a whole bunch of interesting bonuses and some of my favorite clips of Brad. So please go to zfstockhill.com slash Brad to get all of the information you want about Radical Honesty and more. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like me to keep making them, the best thing you can do to help me is go to iTunes and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And also, please leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for a show's success. So if you dig the podcast and you think that other people might like it too, please be sure to leave a rating and review. This week I'm going to try something a little different, and I'm going to play you out with a song. I'm going to call this segment, Please Don't Sue. (laughs) But I have a feeling the artist uh, whose song I'm playing won't mind. Her name is Carsey Blanton. You heard Brad mention her during the episode. And I'm going to have her on the show for episode four. So look forward to that because she's a pretty interesting human being herself, not to mention an incredibly gifted singer-songwriter. So here's Carsey Blanton with one of the prettiest songs I've heard in a long time, To Be Known. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you have yourself a tremendous week. All the men
shuffle through you How it breaks you open to you singing hallelujah Never know the gravity of grace Until it hits you like a stone And isn't it all you've ever wanted To be known to be known